Hey, y'all. How you doing out there? Guess what, y'all? We are going to be at the Wild Goose Festival this year. What's the Wild Goose Festival, you ask? Well, there's a whole website, www.wildgoosefestival.org. We here at Profane Faith Podcast are really excited that we are doing a live recording this year at the Wild Goose Festival. It's going to be on Friday, July 13th, starting around 1 o'clock in the Goose Cast tent. And you can join the fun by being part of our audience. In fact, we can help you out on that. Just go to www.wildgoosefestival.org and use the promo code GOOSECAST18. And there's a little asterisk star next to it. GooseCast18 with a little asterisk star. When you buy your tickets and you'll receive a whopping 25% off, yo. 25% off. Yo, Wild Goose Festival this summer coming up. Profane Faith Podcast doing a live production. You can be in the audience. Get on over there. WildGooseFestival.org. Promo code GooseCast18. Be there. Things are going to get worse before they get better. Got down on his knees and gave his life to Christ. Because Americans are dreamers too. You're not in any moral position to tell anybody how corrupt they are. You should be quiet. Why? Why are our black sons and daughters being treated so badly? This is Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins. Faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. I'm your host, your boy, Daniel White Hodge. Hey, y'all. Welcome back. Welcome back. How y'all doing out there in podcast land? It's summertime, y'all. <laughs> At least it's summertime here in Chicago. Man, we went from like... G Willikers, um, <laughs> you know, 50 degrees one weekend I'm wearing my heavy leather and then the next weekend it's like 93. Oh my goodness, man. Climate change for real, y'all. And what I'm hearing from folks, man, is like uh, it ain't going, you know, this yo-yoing of weather, at least here in the Midwest, uh, it's not going to even get better. So I'm 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 always a little concerned about that. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> You know, maybe, you know, maybe uh, Chicago will turn into L.A. weather, you know, by some look of, you know, uh, luck, stroke of luck. But then by that point, you know, the whole world and ice caps melt. And I'm going to be like that brother and do the right thing. I'm going to get a boat. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Oh, man. How y'all doing out there? Hey, did you guys like the um, special issues that that I dropped out there? Two weeks of special issues. Man. Um Yo, I told you, I was, you know, I was putting stuff together. Got Gambino. Woo! Doggies, all kind of stuff to cover on that. And then you have uh, Dr. Cone had a special issue on that. So I, I brought in, I brought y'all all kind of voices. Um, man, that's, yeah, that's what's up. I'm... Those were exciting. Those were fun to put together. They were fun to have conversations around. There's so much more to analyze with Gambino and what, you know, what that particular uh, video represents and just, you know, where he's trying to go. I'm excited about that. Uh, and of course, Dr. Cohn continues to, uh, you know, establish, he continues to establish his presence, you know, even though obviously he's, he's passed. Um, but he has established his presence, you know, with with folks, and I'm excited. I'm, I'm I'm happy to be able to contribute to that. Another thing I'm I'm thankful of, and particularly for those of you who are listening, I'm really, really, really thankful that uh, folks are just reaching out. Man, we're passing 800 subscribers now, uh, which is just amazing to me. I'm I'm really impressed, and you know, like I said, I know that's not necessarily a big number for a lot of people who are like in the thousands of people, but for me, in my little thing here at White Hodge Manor, White Hodge Recording Studio out here in Chicago. Uh, I'm excited. Um, and I thank you for the emails. I thank you for the direct messages. I thank you for the tweets. Uh, those of you who send me Facebook messages, thank you. Really, thank you. It means a lot. I am overwhelmed with joy. And uh, it's good because this last year was rough. And I just, I thank you. I thank you for that. That's it, uh, It's really nice to, you know, just to have that, that, that engagement. I think you know, oftentimes it just gets, you know, left to the wayside sometimes in terms of, 
you know, what we can say and what we can do and what we can, you know, how we can interact with each other. Um, and this day and age is just crazy. I mean, you know, it's just every day is something new. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. I really do appreciate that. Um, and for those new listeners, if you haven't heard the special issues, please go back the last two weeks uh, on iTunes, uh, whitehodgepodcast.com, uh, Google, really anywhere you find your, your podcasts and, um, you know, check them out and let me know what you think. This week, y'all. Oh, my gosh, man. Kim Kardashian up in the White House with the president talking prison reform. <laughs> oh, man. Is this the type of thing where we don't, you know, we don't look a gift horse in the mouth? Or is it like, wait a minute, two celebrities, two celebrities who love fame are up in there talking about prison reform. Oh, man. This is such a big subject. Uh, for those of you who have not read uh, Dr. Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, uh, I I don't even know what to say. <laughs> you need to go out and get it. I'll put that in the show notes, too. But uh, this has been an ongoing conversation, um, you know, with a lot of people. You know, what does prison reform look like? What does how do we how do we look at right the bad people, quote unquote, the bad folks? So this week, y'all, I needed to bring on a special guest, and I'm going to keep all this stuff short because I really want to get to this interview. I got my man, Reverend Dominique Gilliard on. He's an author, speaker, activist. Uh, he's the director of Racial Righteousness and Reconciliation for the Love, Mercy, Do Justice initiative of the uh, Evangelical Covenant Church. He is the author of this amazing book, Rethinking Incarceration, Advocating for Justice That Restores. This has won all kinds of awards, y'all. He also serves on the board of directors for the Christian Community Development Association and Evangelicals for Justice. In 2015, he was selected as one of ECC's 40 Under 40 Leaders to Watch. And Huffington Post named him one of the black Christian leaders changing the world. Yo, Dominique's on point. In this book, yo, he's already passing. This brother's already out there passing 10,000, you know, book sales. This is what's up. But this book, look, I, I ain't going to lie. I read it and it is thick. It's heavy. It's practical, but it's also getting at you, like really giving you the numbers, particularly for those of you who are still out there. Well, I don't think any of y'all listening to this are, are still out there thinking, oh, man, you know, maybe we need to do something with prison. <laughs> but if you know, I know, you know, people who are like, oh, the bad people just need to be in jail. Yo, let me tell you. He breaks it down and I ain't going to steal the thunder because we get into his book. We get into just, you know, his own story and why, he, you know, why he wrote this book. Uh, but Brother Dominique is 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 breaking it down. And so I wanted to have him on. Um, I recorded this a few weeks ago um, just because, well, I knew I knew we were going to be doing a special issue, a couple of different specials. I got, I got another one coming. <laughs> um, uh, and then this Gambino thing dropped and I was like, oh, man, I got to get that one together. But I definitely wanted to get my boy uh, Dominique on and just help promote his book, because I think this book needs to get out there for those who really can't get into, for example, Michelle Alexander's work, which I don't know who that person is. But Dominique's book is a really, really great read in that in terms of that. I mean, he just goes through it. He just goes through it. He breaks it down. Um, he's got stats. He's got uh, um, some practical engagement with that. We are at a, a, a an apex. I continue to say that we are at an apex in terms of just where we're at as a society, but also uh, as it pertains to um, prison reform. Right. You know, and I feel as a black man, I'm always having to keep my mind open about, you know, is this going to lead to something? Right. Because even if, um, you know, even if it's something like crazy, right, like, oh, man, this would never happen to us. This would, you know, this would never go down. I'd never go to jail for this. I, I'm well within my rights. You know, we're finding that black folks are being locked up and with a with a vicious at a vicious number. Um, and we all know what, you know, incarceration can do to people. So without any further ado. Uh, this is my man, uh, Dominique. And like I said, we go in, we talk about it. Uh, I'm going to put his book in the in the show links, uh, in the show notes. Uh, so check that out. I'll put his uh, website as well. So engage with this brother. He's doing some amazing stuff. Here's our conversation. Yeah. No, that's the truth. Well, I mean, I think, man, this is, yeah, well, this is a beautiful thing. Um, well, this is good, man. Um, well, I guess first and foremost, man. Thanks for coming over and being on the show. I Anytime. appreciate it. Brother. Anytime, brother. Oh, this is good, man. Um, well, tell us a little bit. One of the only questions I usually ask on the podcast is just what's been your faith journey? What has brought you? What's been your point from point A to point now? Hmm. Um, what brought you to this? You said you had the awakening in 06. I'd love to hear a little bit about that. And then what what brought you to this? 
Yeah, well, I'm a PK, so I grew up in the church, <laughs> known the church my whole life. Um, yeah. And really, though, I'd say up until my senior year in high school, you know, I was one of those cats who, yeah, I was a Christian, and Christianity informed my life, but it wasn't, my life didn't revolve around my faith. Yeah. Um, and so I kind of measured my Christianity for a long time as a youth as, as long as it caused me to stop before my friends caused them to stop, then, you know, I was a faithful witness <laughs> kind of thing. And so, right. you know, I was just young and immature and didn't really grasp the depth of what the call of my life was. Yeah. And then two days before my high school graduation, um, I had a major car accident where uh, there was somebody who was driving uh, around 9 p.m., didn't have his lights on, and they were coming down a hill, and I was at a stop sign uh, to turn left to go up the hill. They ultimately hit me, knocked me off the road into a ditch. it was the car was so badly smashed in that they had to cut me out of the car because they couldn't Dang. actually open it. Rushed me over to the ER, and once I got to the ER, there were two possibilities what? that the doctors gave me as far as a diagnosis: either I was going to be paralyzed for the from the neck down for the rest of my life, yeah. or I was going to die. Those are literally the only two possibilities. Wow! And wow. so. Um, upon impact uh, in the accident, I got knocked into a coma. So I got knocked into a coma. My spinal cord got knocked out of place. I broke my ribs on both sides. Um, my mandibles, jaws, everything completely broken. Um, and so my mom called all her ministerial friends. They came to the hospital. Um, they prayed over me throughout the night when she got uh, the next morning when the uh, morning shift came in, they kicked everybody out, and she was begging the doctor, can you please take another x-ray of his uh, spinal cord because yeah. that was the real problem. And the doctor said, we wouldn't have told you this if this wasn't a concrete reality. Um, I know it's hard to adjust to, but this is the new normal that you're going to have to accept. And she said, can you just please take another x-ray? They wow. went back and forth about 10 minutes. He finally consented, and when he took another x-ray, my spinal cord was straightened out. Get out, man. And he was like, don't get what? too excited. Sometimes there's kinks with the machine. <laughs> Let's run it again. <laughs> they ran it six more times. Every time it came out straight. Wow. And he said, I've never seen anything like this before. He said, I don't know how to explain this. And then my mom starts ministering and say, well, I, it wow. was the healing hands of Jesus Christ. Wow. And, and the doctor says, well, medically, I can't say that. But he's like, I don't have an explanation. And so at that point, um, I they say if he wakes up from the coma, mm-hmm. there's a slight chance he could have a full recovery. So I stayed in the coma six more days. So in, for as a total, I was in the coma for a week. Yeah. And then when I woke up, I was looking like Kanye. Um, <laughs> literally. <laughs> that uh, said Kanye. Man, I mean, my mouth, they had to wire my mouth shut. Oh, um, man. I had to learn how to talk again, in some ways walk again. I was in the hospital recovering for three months total. Um, Dang. And, yeah, and it was really jacked up because I was going to school on a partial baseball scholarship. And after this, um, the doctor said I couldn't do anything physically strenuous for the next three years of my life. So that went down the drain. Man. I ended up having to pay his medical bills, my medical bills, um, everything, because he was driving straight and I was turning, and both of our lights got knocked out during the accident. Okay. And... Because I got knocked into a coma, I wasn't considered a credible witness, and everybody inside the car with me was a minor, and so it was his word, and he said that he had his lights on, and so it ended up being this whole huge debacle. I was in a mountain of debt. I couldn't go to the school I wanted to. Everything I worked for to get the scholarship that I had, you know, worked so hard for for so many years was just stripped away from me due to no fault of my own, really. And that was really my spiritual turning point because the first month and a half, I was just bitter. I was mad at the world. Yeah. I was just like, you know, how could this be? And then um, after a month and a half, Every single medical professional, doctor, nurse who would come into the room, they would always stop and say, do you know what kind of medical miracle you are? Mm. Like, literally, Mm. science says that you should be dead. And so it started to 
sink in after hearing that for a month and a half. Mm. Maybe instead of being bitter about what I had lost, I should be thankful for what God had preserved. And yeah. obviously God thought so, you know, worthy of me to intervene in my yeah. life and actually preserve it for a purpose. So I remember at that point I called my mom. I said, hey, I'm sorry for being a jerk over these last month and a half. Can you bring me my Bible? And literally the next month and a half I was in recovery. I stayed in the Word and I stayed wow. praying. Wow. I said, God, reveal to me why you uh, intervened and saved my life. Obviously, there's a call upon it and a purpose. I want mm-hmm. to live into that purpose. Mm-hmm. Help me see how and why I can do that. And so from that point on, you know, God really said, you got some things in your life, some people in your life that are distracting you from me. I need you to purge your life and really recenter it on me. And in the midst of doing that, um, the next steps will become clear. He said, but take a year clean everything up and then get involved in ministry in some way. So I took a year of purge stuff. And then after that, um, I started volunteering with youth ministry. After a year of doing that, they asked me to become the youth pastor. After that, I ultimately ended up going to seminary, doing campus ministry. After that, I took pastoral calls. And then (laughs) it was just like, you know, yeah. Wow. Now, did you, um, now what did, I mean, what did, now what did you get your undergrad in? Did you, were you planning on this or was this like? Nah, ministry wasn't in my future. <laughs> um, <laughs> I did a double major in undergrad, history and African American studies. Okay. And then I went on and did a master's in U.S. history with a focus on race, gender, and class. Nice, nice. Um, in the U.S. from 18th to 21st century. Woo! And then right. I had applied to a doctoral program and got yeah. accepted to Ivy League school. But then oh. right before I went, I went on two middle Two missions trips. One was a domestic missions trip uh-huh. focused on race, gender, class, and multi-ethnicity in mm-hmm. urban context. Okay. And then the second one was an international trip where we were going to do a medical mission slash building trip in the slums of Haiti. Mm. And in between those two uh, ministry experiences, I felt God literally ask, are you willing to lay down what you have planned for your life for what I have planned for your life? And given what had happened before with Mm -hmm. the accident, I was like, yeah, God, like, if you want me to be going this route, um, then ministry is what it is. So I came back home. I got an acceptance letter Mm -hmm. from the school I applied to, and I had to call them back and say, thank you. Um, I appreciate it, but God's taking me in a different direction. And then that's how I ended up here at North Park, uh, and I uh, did my MDF here with a focus on urban ministry um, and racial reconciliation and kind of the rest kind of flows from there. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So, I mean, so preparing for this book, Rethinking Incarceration, you said 06. What happened in 06 that it was like, ah, this is... Yeah, so 06 was my senior year in undergrad. And 10 miles away from our campus, there was this incident where... Uh, a community had been jurisdictively zoned as a no-knock warrant community. Okay. And for people who don't know what no-knock warrant communities are, they're communities that are uh, legislatively designated as communities where uh, officers can enter a premise within that zoned community without mm-hmm. having to display a warrant like they would have to do in any other community or okay. uh, premise in the country. And those designations are given for communities that are stigmatized as drug trafficking communities because the logic is that by the time the officer has to display the warrant, people can destroy the drugs or the drug paraphernalia by flushing it down the toilet and so on and so forth. And so this community had been designated as such, and it was about 10 miles away from my campus. Okay. And so there was a 92-year-old grandmother by the name of Catherine Johnston mm-hmm. who lived in a home in this community, and officers said that they had been staking it out and knew that it was part of the epicenter of drug trafficking in the neighborhood. And so three officers barge into her house um, unidentified without um, uniform at 3 o'clock in the morning, shotguns drawn, and they deployed 39 bullets, fatally strike her five times in her living room, search the house after killing her in cold blood, and realize there's no drugs nor drug paraphernalia anywhere on the premise. Wow. The three officers freak out and say, how do they um, legitimate what just transpired? And they ultimately conspire 
and plant drugs over around her house to try to legitimate what they did to make it appear as if she was caught in drug trafficking. Um, the officers stick to that story all the way through the court proceedings until they realize that they're caught red-handed. And then after realizing they're Jeez. caught red-handed, they confess to the whole thing and said that, acknowledge that they killed her in cold blood, that they planted drugs, that they lied to get the no-knock warrant to start with. The whole thing was a lie. And then when the officers were sentenced, they got a fraction of the time that Katherine Johnston would have gotten if she actually would have been arrested and been involved in drug trafficking. So my professors were saying, as concerned citizens in our African-American studies program, we had an ethical and moral responsibility to go advocate for change legislatively so vulnerable communities like that would no longer be preyed upon in the same way right. and be vulnerable to this kind of institutional corruption. And so I was like, yeah, that's right. That's true. That feels good. But at the same time, I was really dismayed because my faith community wasn't calling me to the same kind of civic engagement. Mm. And I said, if anything should be compelling me to stand up for the rights of the least of these and the humanity right. of vulnerable people, it right. should be my relationship with Jesus Christ, not yes. just my academic institution. And so that right. really planted seeds for what ultimately manifested into this book. Okay. Wow. That's an amazing story, man. Cause you hear that a lot, right? You hear that about cops and people in the, in, in the communities, right? have been talking about that for years. It's like, man, these cops is lying. They've been planting stuff on us. And of course, if you're Latinx, African-American, it's very easy. And if you're coming from a disenfranchised community, it's very easy to just be like, well, and they just lie. Of course, bad people are going to lie. They're going to, they're going to make up whatever they have to make up to, to get out of jail. Right. Yeah. Um, so rethinking incarceration, man. Um, I don't want to give it complete away because I want people to go buy the book. And for those of you listening, I'll put these all in the show notes as always. Um, What's the premise, man? What's what's the overall premise? You talked a little bit about it at the beginning here about, you know, um, Michelle Alexander, you know, did the, you know, kind of the secular route. Although, interestingly enough, she's now teaching at uh, Union, yeah, man. Yeah, <laughs> and, and she acknowledges that the one mistake that she made when she wrote The New Jim Crow uh -huh. was that she underestimated the role of the faith communities mm. in actually mm. bringing about the change, the revolutionary change yeah. that has to happen if yeah. we're ever going to bring mass incarceration to its knees. And so for me, uh, the premise of the book really is it's kind of broken up in two parts. So the first half of the book is asking the question, OK, we know that the United States represents five percent of the world's population, but 25 percent of the world's incarcerated population. But a lot of times we stop there with that stat. OK, I wanted to really drill down into who is actually incarcerated. Right. And what are the systemic realities that are re-perpetuating incarceration in such a targeted way? Right. And so for me. Michelle Alexander and Brian Stevenson's books, as great as they were, they really, well, one, they're dated a little bit at this point, but then two, uh, they really talk about uh, the war on drugs and they, a little bit about the school to prison pipeline as the conduits that are flowing people into our nation's prisons, jails, and detention centers. But I actually make the argument that there's five conduits that are flowing people in. Yes, it's the war on drugs. Yes, it's the school to prison pipeline. But there's also the privatization of prisons okay. and prisons have become this lucrative industry. Um, but then in addition to that, the most sinister and overlooked element is the deinstitutionalization de of mental health facilities yeah. and uh, how mental health has become this conduit flowing in people into incarceration. And then the last one, I argue, is something that a war that is parallel to the war on drugs we just haven't coined it as such which is the war on immigration mm -hmm. and so i said those are yeah. the five conduits that are really flowing people into mass incarceration i explore the history and the statistic data to legitimate my claim for each of those five in the first half of the book and then the second half of the book i centered this question for the church and i actually look at the church's historic engagement with mass incarceration from prison ministry uh, to uh, chaplains, yeah. to uh, our political civic engagement, mm -hmm. to looking at what we've done right, what we've done wrong, and how we can ultimately get better. And so the last chapter really highlights what I call holy interruptions to the systems. So I don't leave us hopeless. I actually point out a number of entities that are doing holistic ministry and trying to do it right. That's good. No, that's what's up. So let me ask this, man. So let me, because this is a constant, you know, um, uh, you know, response when you when people start talking about this, and in this era where 
it seems like history, you're a history buff and an and, and expert. You know, people want to relive. I mean, I, I just found this out this morning. I was driving on the way in. NPR has a story on this. Um, the largest Confederate uh, burial site is here in Chicago mm. on the south side. Mm. And, you know, they were interviewing people and they were people were, you know, the Confederate sons, the sons of the Confederates were, were talking about how, you know, this wasn't about slavery. This wasn't mm-hmm. about this. You know, this was really about, you know, honor in our country and our pride. So there's always somebody, right? How do you explain, how do you respond to somebody and say, look, the bad people that need to be in jail are in jail. I mean, that's what prisons are for. I mean, they should be in jail if they're doing something bad. What, what is your engagement with that, especially as a, as a minister and as somebody in, you know, in the faith community? Because we hear a lot of this from the faith community, right? Yeah, yeah. So for Christians, my response would be that we know that we are literally only children of God because of the grace of God. Mm-hmm. And scripture tells us that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners, okay. while we were enemies of God. Okay. And so it's literally only by grace that we're claimed and marked as family members mm. of God. Mm. And so if it is true that it is only by grace, then Christians are called to divorce themselves from this kind of meritocratic ethic that the U.S. is built upon, where it says you get what you deserve. Because right. ultimately, if we got what we deserved, we will be eternally separated from God. And so if it is that we are redeemed and restored by grace, then I believe that that grace that was first extended to us must be extended to others when they violate the confines of community. Yeah. And so this whole notion of uh, get tough on crime, law and order, zero tolerance, these things are really antithetical to what we're called to be as people who are marked by grace. Yes, people must be held accountable when they commit criminal offenses, but that accountability ultimately must be uh, built upon relationships, and it must ultimately lead towards some point uh, in intention for healthy reintegration and right now our criminal justice system is really predicated upon dehumanization financial exploitation and isolation and not restoration reconciliation and healthy reintegration and so i would say that you know as christians we have fundamentally misunderstood what god's justice is about god's justice is inherently restorative and not just punitive punitiveness without a plan for restoration is not biblically rooted as justice. Mm. Interesting. Um, well, that's interesting, man. Cause I think as I think about this, um, you know, I think there's a, a large misconception from the public and what they understand as prison. Right. I mean, you, I mean, you think, like you said, zero tolerance, get tough on crime. How are, as you've seen it, as you studied this and, and, you know, how are particularly, uh, young people of color. You have a whole chapter here in the School of Prison Pipeline. Uh, I've done some work on that myself. And so I'd be curious, particularly how we, you know, we hear this a lot, African-American, Latinx students are targeted more just in even disciplinary measures that lead to, yeah. you know, that could yeah. lead to something like that. What what have you seen in, in that environment? And I include native, uh, native students yes, as well. Yes, please, please, um, yes. And so I think for me, Well, right now we live in a nation where it's predicted that one in three black men will spend time behind bars in their lifetime. Mm. And the number is one in six for Hispanic males. Uh, African-American, well, black men represent 6.5% of the U.S. population, but 40.2% of our incarcerated population. And the reality is the study after study after study has shown that black, brown, and native people are no more likely to use or sell drugs than white people. But when you actually look (laughs) at at the numbers for who is incarcerated for drug offenses, you see these grave dis, uh, disproportionate realities. And a lot of that is rooted in the systemic injustice of sen- sentencing. So many people know about the disparity between sentencing for crack and powder cocaine that was on the books um, historically up until 2010, where it said that for crack, you get 100 times more severe sentencing for the exact same amount of powder cocaine, even though the substance does the exact same thing to you. Um, But crack is disproportionately used by black and brown folk, and powder is disproportionately used by white folk. And then so in 2010, 
they called themselves addressing that um, injustice and that inequity in sentencing, and they reduced it from 101 disparity to an 18 to 1 disparity. But the only real mm. equivalency is a 1 to 1. And so you see just even within the sentencing, it is racially biased in a way that is going to lead to black and brown people spending more time for literally doing the same nonviolent criminal activity across the board. And so within our schools, though, we have to, we have failed to really take seriously implicit bias in the way yeah. that it plays out into uh, disciplinary um, measures within our school. And so the Skrill to Prison Pipeline um, looks at how we have shifted from a response of handling, handling disciplinary actions in-house in school to exporting them out of house and uh, bringing in law enforcement to actually enforce disciplinary Ooh. measures within our school. Yeah. And that shift really starts in 1971 and it manifests and worsens as there is the surge in school shootings that happen, particularly after Columbine and Sandy Hook. Wow. And so, and our great irony of that is that the funding that is delegated and allocated towards SRO, school resource officers, increases after each of those shootings to try to make our campuses more safe. But disproportionately, school shootings are happening in suburban Caucasian communities. Yeah. But when you actually look at where the officers are actually being allocated to enforce the law, right. it's disproportionately in impoverished communities of color yeah and so that's one of the real ironies as we continue to talk about school shootings that mm -hmm. i don't hear anybody talking about but that's if you point. actually trace the dollars it's clear um that that's what's been going on and it's been proven that having more officers alone that's all it takes to have a disproportionate number of students who actually end up incarcerated and mm -hmm. in, in intertwined within the school to prison pipeline and so, um, and then the last thing with school bias, uh, implicit so, bias, I want to say is yeah, that yeah. we know that the numbers tell us that this starts as early as preschool. African Americans yes. represent 18% of preschoolers in our nation, but they represent 48% of preschoolers who are suspended, expelled, or arrested in class. As early as preschool. This is, it, I mean, you, so you're talking about, I mean, this is beautiful because it's like on page 87, you're talking about police presence in schools. I just wanted to go back to that point. You said that by the mere presence of police officers in the schools. Yep. Yep. So, and, you know, most people don't realize the background with um, school resource officers. School resource officers actually really start in Flint, Michigan, ironically. Um, and <laughs> it is an attempt to actually improve the relationships between uh, communities of color and officers. They want to integrate uh, officers in schools so that students of color start to see them on an everyday basis and can interact with them on a human basis and mm -hmm. actually don't fear them. So initially they're employed in schools uh, as teachers' aides. So they're gym coaches, they're school counselors, they're, they're doing things to aid the classroom, but they're not enforcing the law within schools. Okay. But when you actually see this rise in school shootings, the mm -hmm. role of officers shift. They're no longer school resource personnel who are aiding professors and teachers but they're now actually law enforcement and within enforcing the law one of the big problems with school resource officers is that over 90 percent of school resource officers who are in school have received literally no training about the difference between policing the law within a school versus out on the streets and so you have officers who have been trained to actually treat juvenile mischief as criminal activity and it ups the ante within our classrooms to the point that we see, we've seen repeatedly these really damaging images and videos, particularly of white male officers using excessive force against uh, females of color. Okay. And so when we think about like Ben Fields um, in the situation in South Carolina, or, or even when we think about the situation that happened in McKinney, Texas, outside of the classroom, right. you see right. this consistent right. ethic of white male officers using excessive force because they have not been trained in childhood, adolescent development 
to cognitively understand the difference between juvenile mischief and criminal activity out on the streets. And so I highlight it as one of the very tangible ways that we can actually start to advocate for a justice system that restores and that humanizes is that we should require all school resource officers to actually go through cognitive development training so they can understand <laughs> how to appropriately right. implement uh, the enforcement of the laws within a school versus out on the streets where they might be feeling more threatened by criminal activity. Right. Man, I mean, that's big. I mean, because you say this on page 89, it says schools with SROs have a disproportionate number of students arrested for minor offenses. And since youth with records drop out of high school at higher rates, schools with SROs have higher dropout rates. In many schools, the new role of SROs have shifted the atmosphere from an environment of adolescent learning to that of a quasi-correctional institution. I know that I've worked in several high schools that were like that, right? I mean, when I hear students talking about, oh, we got to wear clear backpacks, and we got, I'm like, man, we've been having to do that in our schools for a long time. And it was really a, it was, it really felt like, you know, going into, I mean, you know, we've, we've both been into prison systems before. And so it's like, you know, having to go through all those security checks and everything. Um, well, real quick, what are SROs? Just for those people like, what, what do you mean by SROs? They're school resource officers. So go. they're All literally right. the officers that you see within our schools, which are normative now, but that that wasn't reality when we were in school. Right. And right. so one of the, the other problems with SROs is the lack of accountability. Um, and the same lack of accountability we see within broader police structures. Okay. And so, for example, um, SROs have been fired for stalking teachers arresting, oh, arrested for immoral conduct and charged with statutory rape of students. For instance, uh, Jacoby Robert Diligent in Houston was an SRO who forced a 14-year-old girl to perform oral sex on him. Oh. And Jamel Hill, I mean, Jamel Hall of South Carolina was charged with statutory battery and misconduct in office for having sex with a student on school grounds. And so there is this way in which we, again, have failed to hold officers accountable when misconduct happens. Of course, I just have to say this just for anybody who wants to take it there. Of course, I'm not talking about all officers. Of sure. course, I'm not saying that all officers. <laughs> but we have to hold the ones who are um, misappropriating, uh, mis acting mis acting inappropriate and um, not holding their sworn duty of the badge accountable. Um, and we have failed to do that even within our school systems. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a big thing, right? I mean, when you think about just the amount of police officers that are, you know, already located. And I mean, this brings up another question, right? So you got Parkland high school students, um, and, you know, they had an armed guard there on duty mm -hmm. that's allegedly, quote unquote, trained. But of course, he froze up, didn't go in. And now there's two ironies there. One, that irony that, you know, the, the narrative that says, well, if we only had more armed guards, right? The narrative that says, well, we need more armed teachers and they should carry weapons and then we wouldn't have this. And then the other narrative that we herald police officers, we really don't even hold them accountable when they say, I feared for my life. And let me just shoot this black man 30 times. Um, and oh, but we herald them like, oh, yeah, they had every means of doing that. But then it's like this this person who didn't defend white students or mostly white students. Right. Is booed and called a coward and all these things. Right. So I, I don't know. I find the irony uh, in that. Um, so I don't know. What are, what are your thoughts, particularly on armor, armament, gun laws? Because this feels like it, touch, it touches base with with this. Oh. Yeah, I mean, I think the rhetoric, again, as I come at this from a minister's perspective, as a of person of faith, like, when we see Jesus getting apprehended and we see the disciple respond with violence and cut off a ear, Jesus tells that's not the way that we respond. Mm. And so when we look at this issue, just because there is this violation, there has to be another way to hold people accountable and to make our communities more safe than to say we respond to violence with violence or the threat of violence by arming teachers. Because we've already seen a couple of teachers who've been armed who, you know, shot themselves and done inappropriate things. And so, it's you know, I think theologically, even the legitimization of bearing arms within schools, that's not going to ultimately make our country safer and our school is safer um you don't respond to violence with violence and think that that's ultimately going to purge out violence yeah and so 
No, uh, yeah, yeah. That's all. Oh, that's always interesting. That's how you <laughs> purge violence with violence. But that's kind of been the way of the U.S. though, right? It's like you know we're going to establish peace by going in and blowing things up. We're going to blow. We're going to we're going to shoot missiles at Syria, <laughs> you know. But then we're not even going to allow this. Anyway, that's, that, a, that's a placebo peace though. That's not yeah. true peace. And yeah. I think you know when we just to that's re, a good point. come back to the uh, school to prison pipeline real quick. I yes. just want to show the that the school suspensions have grown exponentially since 1974 when I talked about. In 1974, there were 1.7 million people who were suspended for school. In 2000, there were 3.1 million students who oh. were expended. So you see this philosophical shift to actually outsourcing discipline, uh, kicking right. students out through suspension, expulsion, or having them arrested by law enforcement. So that's what we're talking about when we're talking about the school to prison pipeline. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I love that you give the definition here um, with that because it. I think oftentimes we we overlook that we overlook what what this actually means and that like you said it starts it starts young yep. I mean it starts you know what is it reading scores or yeah. you know and, and, and third to fifth grade third math to, yeah. or reading scores as projections for how many students will ultimately end up behind bars. How have you seen uh, the private industrial you know prison complex grow? I mean because it's like it you know it just seems like that just morally you would think people would think twice about that but it's like how have you seen that grow particularly now in the, in the era that we we find ourselves in you know yeah um so most people don't realize that private prisons are actually a really recent phenomenon um private prisons don't come on the scene until 1984 okay and so in 1980, we really first have this question, this moral question, what are we going to do? Because of the exponential amount of people who are being incarcerated because of the war on drugs, <laughs> right, we are right. literally running out of space within our state and federal facilities to house people. And in 1980, we recognized that. And we, at that point, we have the choice. Either we can look at resentencing, we can embrace diversion programs to actually give people who are going to jail for chemical dependencies the medical interventions they need or we can do what we ultimately did which was hire a third party to ultimately build new private prisons because we don't have the capacity to build them on the state and federal level and continue to incarcerate people at the exact same rate that we have been incarcerating people and so because of that reality let me just paint this picture for you yes today we live in a nation where we have more jails, detention centers, and prisons than we do degree-granting institutions in our mm. nation. And because of that, in many parts of the country, particularly in the Southeast, there are more people living behind bars than are living on college campuses. Mm. And so California, your home state, I know, um, is a perfect example of that. Right. This, right. Since 1980, California has built 22 new prisons, jails, or detention centers and one new degree-granting institution. And so there has been this choice that we are going to economically invest in incarceration right. over education repetitively, but then also we are not going to embrace diversion programs and give people the medical interventions that they need. And so right. to tie private prisons into this, most people don't realize that private prisons really function in the same way that hotels do. Literally every night that a hotel has a vacant room, they lose money. The same thing is true for private prisons, to the point that private prisons, when they come into a community, which they usually go into sparsely populated rural communities yeah. uh, that are economically deprived, that need some kind of financial um, investment, yeah, they bring these jobs, and when they come, they sign 10-year contracts with the community. And within the 10-year contract, it has a bed minimum occupancy rate that is uh, written into the contract. And these uh, bed minimums range anywhere from 70% occupancy to 100% occupancy. Mm -hmm. So the state of Arizona is the worst offender. They have three <sighs> oh, private man. prisons that have 100% bed occupancy rates. So literally every single night, there must be 100% occupancy within that prison yeah. or the private prison can sue the community as being in violation Get of contract out of and, here, man. and that is actually happening i actually talk about one of those cases in the book where <sighs> a private prison sues <sighs> a community for being in violation of contract and they ultimately had to pay the private prison and so that that reality of profiteering 
it has led it to the point that private prisons have become one of the top five most bought and sold stocks on Wall Street. Wow. Um, people are getting filthy rich off of the incarceration of vulnerable people. And as Christians, though, we shouldn't be surprised by this because Scripture tells us for the love of money is the root of all yeah, kinds no, of evil. Uh, absolutely. And private prisons are a manifestation of the love of money. And so... But private prisons, even the connected to another pipeline I talk about, they're directly connected to the war on immigration because 90% of people who are incarcerated for immigration offenses are housed within private prisons. Okay. And the other reality is that in 2010, um, there was a bed a mandate introduced into federal legislation by a Democrat. And I think that's important because I think a lot of times when we talk about uh, mass incarceration, war on drugs, this kind of thing, we can fall into partisan politics and say, like, it's all about the Republicans. Mass incarceration is a bipartisan agenda. Both Republicans and Democrats have Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, expedited their political career by playing get tough on crime policies and rhetoric and deploying that toxin toxicity that really has been an impediment for people who are trying to come out of the system and have Mm -hmm. a true second chance at life and has been a hindrance but in 2010 there was a democrat um who uh, introduced a bill that said that on average ice must detain 34,000 people nightly in this country for immigration offenses nightly nightly (laughs) nightly oh my gosh Whoa, whoa. So, man, man, this, 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 is, this is a lot, man. And again, for those of you out there listening, man, I highly recommend this book. I do want to, I mean, I just want to commend you, brother, because oftentimes, you know, we have Christian books and they talk about this. And I'll just, I'll just be, I'll be honest, they're fluff. This book is thick. It's got footnotes. It's got graphs, man. I mean, this thing is well documented as an academic who looks at, texts for for actual classrooms this is one i would use um because it really really you gain you got the problem nailed part one and you and you you put it out there and then you start to look at you know okay so what's next so i'd be interested as as we're thinking about all this because i'm sure there's somebody out there saying right now but what do we do what do we do I don't want to necessarily give a five-step process but you talk a little bit about this right the spirit of punishment atonement penal substitution the wrath of god the prisoners, pastor, chaplaincy, the theologies, institutional impact, and then, a, then divine justice is inherently restorative. What are some thoughts, man? I mean, it, 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 this thing just sounds so complex to the person who's like in the corner in the rural area, or maybe somebody who's just entering into to post-industrial ministry type of work and settings. How do we even engage that? I mean, what do we what do we even look like? And I know we're gonna be we're gonna be uh, conscious of time here and everything like that. But I'd love to hear just see some thoughts. Um, on that yeah i think well first as evangelicals the way that we've historically embraced uh prison ministry has been about saving souls Mm -hmm. um and not holistic ministry so the first thing is learning how and why we must embrace holistic ministry and how ultimately understanding and doing a deep exegesis to use uh uh theological term Mm -hmm. a deep study of the communities that are being uh, targeted and profiled how that can help us to understand how we can better meet the needs of brothers and sisters who are ultimately spending time behind bars because we can understand the context in which they come and some of the trauma and the historic realities of institutional neglect that they've endured that have led them into the system Um, but then also I think the other reality is how do we not just leave people or check them off after we get them converted after they give their life to christ how do we do discipleship with people behind bars and how do we ultimately walk with people from the entire process of being incarcerated to re-entering into society like um, when people come out of jail and prison they need communities who are going to be intimate with them to do life on life discipleship with them and not love them from a distance how do we ultimately have churches who are committed to adopting uh somebody a returning citizen or two and say we're going to intentionally make space at our table for you we're going to actually use our social capita to help you actually 
do anything from get your license and your birth certificate to actually find housing to find employment and we're going to actually leverage our resources to actually create a space for you to reintegrate into society right. in healthy full ways but i think the other thing the church has really just failed to do is they failed to have a real authentic conversation about the relationship between incarceration and scripture yeah and so what i mean by this you know Four of the books of our Bible were written in the midst of incarceration. Mm. Um, the four Pauline prison epistles, they mm-hmm. were written in the midst of incarceration. But on top of that, um, the book of Colossians in particular, we see that the city, the church in the city is actually backsliding. They're falling away from an orthodox understanding of who Christ is. And it is Paul in the midst of being incarcerated mm. who is actually pastoring them back to faithfulness from wow. behind prison walls. And it is only possible because of one of Paul's disciples is faithfully living in the scripture and actually going and visiting the incarcerated. And so I think it's so critical that, you know, Matthew 25 says that all Christians have an ethical, moral, theological responsibility to be present within our criminal justice system, to be present behind bars. And Jesus says he cares so much about this that when we do it, we don't just do it to the least of these, we do it unto Jesus. And that scripture doesn't say liberal Christians, progressive Christians. It says all Christians have a responsibility to be present behind bars. And so oftentimes I say, I only had to write this book and give these presentations and do these podcasts because we don't know because we don't go. And (laughs) if we were actually present, you would be starkly, it would be so stark how many black and brown bodies are warehoused behind prison bars and caged like animals that we wouldn't have to have these conversations about racial inequalities and raising the, the awareness yeah. of how disproportionate our criminal justice system is. Brian Stevenson likes to say that we have a criminal justice system that works better for you if you're rich and you're guilty than if you're poor and then you're innocent. Wow. And there is this hmm. real racial and class uh, hmm. bias that is present within our criminal justice system. But then going back to scripture, Hebrews 13, 3 says that we are supposed to remember the incarcerated as if we ourselves were incarcerated. Hmm. And what would the church's witness in the world look like if we were actually to remember the prisoner in that way and do discipleship that actually led us to engage our broken system yeah. in faithful ways and consistent ways like that? But then on top of that, I just like to say just bluntly, yes, blunt. There is literally no Christianity. Uh-huh. There is no gospel. Mm-hmm. There is no faith without criminals. Like, literally, if you take all the criminals out of the Bible, there is no good news to pass down. I mean, starting with Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who was falsely incarcerated and put to death by uh, the powers that be. Then you talk away Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, John the Baptist. Um, But then it doesn't just stop there. You got uh, Joseph, Malachi, Stephen, Jeremiah, Peter, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Silas, Hananiah the seer. All of these people were criminals, not to even mention the other people who committed criminal offenses who didn't get arrested for their criminal offenses, like Moses, who was a murderer, and David, who was a murderer. And so I think there is this way in which the early church understood that God still had the power to speak and work through people who were incarcerated in a way that we today we are just as prone to throw stones and outcast and shun people who have had any kind of interaction with the criminal justice system to the point that we're actually missing out on part of the revelation that God has for the body by stigmatizing whole quadrants of people wow 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 man that's 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 a good word right there man um let me ask you this two questions yeah um Who's who do you see like is doing it? You know, maybe, you know, one or two examples. Um, And then ultimately, do you have hope, man? What's 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 your hope levels look like in this era that we that we live in and kind of some of the uncertainty and ambiguity that happened, you know, that is happening, you know, right now and and, and, and whatnot? I don't know. Does that? Yeah. I'll give you a couple of people who are giving me hope. Michelle Alexander, of course, um, and particularly her move to Union Theological Seminary to reawaken the church to its moral and ethical responsibility to be a presence of peace and justice and reconciliation in our world. Uh, Brian Stevenson, his work at the Equal Justice Initiative is 
hopeful um and then the other thing i'll say is the shift within seminaries where they've actually started to see education as a form of restorative or reparative justice where they're actually going in like what's happening here at north park theological seminary where they're creating these learning environments where half of the classrooms are composed of uh, people who are incarcerated and the other half are composed of seminarians where it's creating a new posture for church leaders towards this conversation um, it's destigmatizing some of the ways that we've been taught to think about criminals as those people as so other than us but it's creating curating this common space of learning and humanity and engagement yeah. that should lead to the church actually bearing witness to them in a more faithful way over the course of time so we see this kind of approach to education being embraced across the nation in some ways so you got duke has a sim, uh, program like that mm. we have north park has a program like this uh, new orleans baptist uh, seminary has a program oh, like okay. this and so All there right. is this embrace that this and I, I find real hope there um Good. and then your second question was sorry I didn't. no 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 <laughs> that's i was just mainly just seeing you know who's doing it and then you know what's your level of hope in this, oh, in this area i mean so my level of hope is high i mean the reality is um michelle alexander likes to say there was once a point in time where we thought the slavery was never going to end there was a point in time where we thought Jim Crow was never going to end. We thought that there was going to be a time where women were going to be forever barred from the vote. Um, but in all of those times and all of those movements, once the church awakened to its moral and ethical responsibility to actually join the freedom caravan, you actually started to see things change. And so there's already this climate. There's already this freedom caravan to actually bring mass incarceration to its knees. But the church just has a critical question to answer. Are we going to actually jump on board or are we actually going to be a hindrance to this movement to actually mm. uh, and, you know, I think scripture is explicitly clear in Acts 16, where we see Paul and Silas endure police brutality before being incarcerated, um, that we actually are called to actually bring the foundations of an unethical criminal justice system to its knees. Um, and so the church just really has to answer the question, are we going to actually reexamine the scriptures and see that God's justice is inherently restorative mm -hmm. and about uh, reconciliation and healthy reintegration are we going to continue to uh, embrace and support punitive measures like get tough on crime law and order um, zero three strikes you're out zero tolerance policies that are really um, an impediment for people who let's just bring it on the church level who find christ behind bars and legitimately want to come out and have a true second chance at life um, are we going to continue to support policies that actually make that impossible good point Good point, man. Um, brother, this has been great. And it's hard to believe that, you know, 50 minutes have gone by just like that in this. Um, where can folks find you? Where can uh, folks, uh, you know, come come give, come give you that large honorarium and uh, <laughs> have you be the president of their university, man? <laughs> um, you can find me at uh, DominiqueGilliard.com. And on Facebook, uh, you can just search my name, Dominique Du Bois Gilliard. Instagram, Twitter, I'm all those places. You can find the book on Amazon. Um, since it's been released, uh, the majority of the time over the last three months, it's been the number one seller on Amazon in, in the criminal law department. Yeah. And uh, you can also get the book from Inner Varsity uh, Press. Excellent, excellent. And for those of you listening, I will post all these in the show notes. Um, Rethinking Incarceration, uh, Advocating for Justice That Restores. This is an amazing book. I Again, I cannot recommend it enough, particularly for those of you in, in, in faith communities. So, Dominique, thank you so much for coming on today, brother. Thanks for having me. All right. During a 30-year period of time, our nation's prison population quintupled. Not doubled or tripled, quintupled. We went from having a prison population in the 1970s of about 300,000 people. Today, we have an incarcerated population of over 2 million. We have the highest rate of incarceration in the world, dwarfing the rates of even highly repressive regimes like Russia or China or Iran. But during this 30-year period of time when our prison population exploded, crime rates fluctuated. They went up, 
went down, went back up again, went down again, went up, and then down, down, down. And today, as bad as crime rates are in some parts of the country, crime rates nationally are at historical lows. But incarceration rates have consistently soared. Most criminologists and sociologists today will acknowledge that crime rates and incarceration rates in the United States have moved independently of one another. Incarceration rates, especially black incarceration rates, have soared regardless of whether crime is going up or going down in any given community or the nation as a whole. So what explains the sudden, unprecedented explosion in incarceration, if not simply crime and crime rates? Well, it turns out that the activists who posted that sign on the telephone pole were right. The war on drugs and the get tough movement, the wave of punitiveness that washed over the United States on the heels of the civil rights movement. Drug convictions alone, just drug convictions, account, accounted for about two thirds of the increase in the federal prison population and more than half of the increase in the state prison population between 1985 and 2000, the period of our prison system's most dramatic expansion. Drug convictions have increased more than a thousand percent since the drug war began. I mean, to get a sense of how large a contribution the drug war has made to mass incarceration, think of it this way. There are more people in prisons and jails today just for drug offenses than were incarcerated for all reasons in 1980. 